Hello, it's Matt and Becky here from Local Zero. Just a quick note to say before the episode starts that from April 2024, Local Zero will be looking for some new funding to keep it going. We never imagined when we started three years ago that we'd rack up tens of thousands of listens across 130 countries and with a website hosting over 80 episodes. We've also met and worked with some incredible people, including Chris Stark, Hannah Ritchie, Jim Ski, Hugo Tacom, and so many more. And we've been able to showcase so many amazing local climate initiatives from all over the UK and far beyond. But sadly, keeping the pod going costs money. If you or your organisation would like to partner up with the pod as we move into an exciting new chapter, then do reach out to us. You can contact us via our email, localzeropod at gmail.com. That's localzeropod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can contact us on X, formerly Twitter, at localzeropod or on LinkedIn, direct to Matt Hannon or Rebecca Ford. Finally, to help us in our quest to secure funding, we want to hear positive stories from listeners about how the pod has influenced your life and your work. And we hope to do a very special episode on this too. So please help us continue the fight against climate change and bring local climate action to doorsteps across the world. Thanks for listening. Now back to the pod. Hello, I'm Dr. Matt Hannon. Hello, I'm Dr. Rebecca Ford, and welcome to Local Zero, otherwise known as the Time Scotland podcast of the week. This episode is the first in a two-parter on land. Today, we cover land ownership and explore how democratic it is, what this means for net zero and a just transition, and finally, what can be done to democratise land ownership. Land ownership strongly influences how we manage our land and our buildings. And this is what we'll pick up on in the next episode, asking how we could reimagine land to better tackle the multiple overlapping social, economic and environmental crises of our times. Pretty tall order, eh, Matt? Absolutely. And later in today's show, we'll have with us Malcolm Combe, who's Senior Lecturer of Law here at Strathclyde University. There's no denying that ownership of land is a huge agenda-setting tool when it comes to crucial decisions about building a local bit of energy apparatus. And we'll also be joined by Kate Swade, a director at Shared Assets, a community interest company who are developing and promoting new models of land use. It does all go back to land. If you have land, whether you're a church or a doctor's surgery or a hospital or a local authority, you do have the power to do stuff with that land that can have a huge impact. And Fraser chats with Magnus Davidson from the Environmental Research Institute at the University of the Highlands and Islands. Regulate the land system, that's it. We've got an unregulated land system. If you go to buy a piece of land, it should automatically trigger what's called a public interest test, where you are judged on your plans for that piece of land to make sure it's in the public interest. So we've got a heap of new stuff to tell people about, don't we, today, team? So first off, remember our new Twitter handle. Loads of people have been getting into conversations. Most of them have been quite polite. Hopefully this is just the beginning, but do come and find us. We're at Local Zero Pod on Twitter. And we also have a new website. We're just putting the finishing touches to it, and we hope it will be live by the time we publish this episode. And you can find us at www.localzeropod.com. All episodes will be embedded and links to the source material, wider reading and some blogs when we get the time. (laughs) 
Yeah, time's always important. And finally, we know that some of you don't like to reach out via Twitter. So we've also got a new email address set up. You can contact us using the email address localzeropod at gmail.com. So do get in touch with us using more than your 280 characters that Twitter allows you. Right, so we've got loads to get into today. But first of all, let's bring in Fraser, because we've got a lot of self-congratulations to do, don't we? Fraser, welcome. We certainly do. We certainly do. How does it feel, Becky and Matt? Tell me how it feels to be the hosts of the Times Podcast of the Week. Woohoo! Very happy with that and, and you know, absolutely thrilled to, to have it profiled. And a big thank you to Ashley Davis from the, the, the Times Scotland for profiling us. Yeah, brilliant. And Matt, you must have had a, had a good chat with her about the pod. Yeah, we did. We did. So, you know, we we're able to explore exactly what the pod does and had to kind of boil it down into a few words. Um, yeah, those words, geeky, huh, Matt? Geeky. Yes, yes. Just who's it for? <laughs> it's the geeks out there. And, you know, I'm trying to sort of lay ownership to the word a little bit more and... Uh, I think that's a good thing. We're all hopefully a bit geeky about what we can do to tackle climate change, uh, to make for a you know fairer, greener, happier society. So uh, yeah, so this is for you guys, the geeks out there, and that's uh, that's a good thing. I'd like to immediately immediately distance myself from geeky. I have nothing to <laughs> do with it. That's because we had a vote earlier, Fred. We decided <laughs> you were the coolest, and I was easily the geekiest. Which uh, I mean, I contest that result, obviously. But well, so so where do we sit with kind of nerdy? How does that interplay with all of this? I think it's slightly better than geek, but I don't know the rules. I'm still not taking it. I'm still not taking it. <laughs> but no, listen, it's it's good. You know, we need to be geeky about this. It's a big subject, and we really need to boil it down and understand what to do. So yeah, absolutely. Uh, thrilled that it was profiled and hopefully we can grow the audience a bit more uh, and bring in people who haven't heard of us uh, previous to that. Absolutely. And where better to start with an episode that really focuses on something that we interact with every single day, land. Yeah. I don't know about you guys, I hadn't really ever thought about land ownership until I bought my house here in Scotland. And along with the plans of the house, you also see the land that you own. And I mean, I own, according to the house plans, like half the road that goes round in front of me. I mean, I'm not really sure what I can do with that. But yeah, it's a really interesting subject and probably one that a lot of people might not have really thought about. Yeah. So did a bit of background research on this around, you know, how affordable houses are. And it's been in the news very much of late. Um, we've seen house prices rocket with lockdowns, lots of economic seismic movements around why this is the case. But if I was to ask you today how much the average house price is as a multiplier of the average wage? 10 times. 10 times, Fraser? About 10 times more, yeah. So it is not far off. It's about eight times. Okay. And if you were to go back to the 1970s, what would you say? Oh, I reckon far less. Yeah. Four, five? Fraser? I don't even know if I'd go as high as that. See, I'd say three, it's a triple. Yeah, so it's it's about five. So we've you know we see now why affordability is such an issue, and I think the the issue and the topic of land begins when people start to ask you know how affordable a house is to buy, how affordable a house is to rent, but then it starts to bleed beyond that. So for me, land became the big issue for net zero, being involved with community energy. And Fraser, I'm going to ask you a question about this in a minute. Big issue around community energy is that if you didn't have access to the land or the buildings you were pretty limited in what you could do. So this goes neatly, Fraser, onto you know, your experience, I think, of the community energy solar, 
the project that Glasgow Community Energy are doing and how easy that was because obviously you're engaging with the council I think it is and the schools there so you're you're kind of accessing that land through them we'd originally the plan for Glasgow Community Energy was to use derelict land which was sort of absentee ownership we were trying to take that and put it to good use but it was such a labyrinth legally to try and get around it was just impossible to do so we were kind of forced into a partnership with the council now we're happy to do that and it's a great way to do it it's an effective way to do it but there's so much more that we'd hope to do that the way that land is sort of owned and managed in Scotland and across the UK, I know it, I know it differs, but the way that that land is managed and owned can make it really, really tricky. We also have not just community energy, but from like literally out the, the back of my flat just now at my back window, you can see a big piece of land that's been absent since I moved into this flat four years ago, where we've had various efforts to set up community projects, community growing, different things like that. But because... It's owned by an absentee owner or developer. They come in every four or five years and they flatten the projects that are happening there. And, and so the cycle continues. So it's not just, I think that's an important thing. It's not even just home ownership. And it's not even just when we think about sort of the highlands and what's getting done with that. But there's land around the corner from your house. There's there's land at the back of your flat that's also tied up in all of this. Absolutely. So, I mean, you're going going to back to the landlord. Uh, Buckley, and I've got a few more quiz questions here. This is... <laughs> And now, now I see why he described this as geek. <laughs> this is data. So I, yeah, it's a good word. It's a positive thing. Um, so the data I'm referring to comes from a book from Guy Shrubsoul, uh, who we hope is going to be uh, a guest on our next podcast. So some questions about who owns England. The first thing is that he found, finds that half of England is owned by less than 1% of the population. That's 25,000 landowners. But of the 82% of land that they could pinpoint as to certain landlords, so they, they actually didn't know what the remaining 18% was, how much of land do you think in England is owned by homeowners? I mean, it's got to be small. Yeah, small amount. I'd say less than 10% of that. Okay, Fraser? Ballpark, yeah, I'm, I'm going to go eight. 5%. Wow. Wow. And presumably this has massive impacts on... You know, I know, Fraser, you were just talking about what you could do with the land that you can see out the back of your window. But, you know, in, in previous episodes, we've been talking about the need for things like reforestation and so on. Mm -hmm. And presumably the fact that this land might be owned by people who don't necessarily have those kind of common good interests at the heart of their decision making. This is the point. So the, the, the other, he breaks it down into different, different landowners, right? And I, I think I'm going to get right back to that point. But before we do, let's talk about the Queen and the royal family and other aristocracy and gentry. Aristocracy and gentry, this doesn't include the Crown estate, we'll come on to that. Aristocracy and gentry, what share of England do they own? Doesn't include the Crown. Well, if homeowners was 5%, say 15? Yeah, I, I, I'm going to go a bit higher, actually. I reckon 25. 30%. Wow. Whoa. And I'll rattle off some of the others so it gives us a sense of who can do what. Companies, 18%. Public sector, 9%. The crown, 1.4%. <laughs> I mean, I could go on and on here, but the, the point is, is that the land ownership is concentrated in just a handful of, of individuals and companies. And so the decisions that need to be made around net zero and a just transition, you know, those decisions about what we do with our land 
don't rest with all of us. They, they, they rest with the few, not the many. Absolutely. I mean, that's really fascinating. And then you look at things like where the real drive to net zero is coming from. And certainly, you know, across the UK, we see it from the local councils. That's a, a massive drive. But I mean, even looking at things like um, the race to net zero and the number of businesses and, uh, you know, universities and so on that have signed up for that. But you've got to think, even if you took all of those groups now and everything that you've just told us, Matt, and put it together, collectively, they probably only account for a very small percentage of actually what we can do. Let's just take some of the key actors here. Local authorities own about one and a half million acres, okay? So, you know, we're talking a, a not insignificant percentage of the total amount. But presumably there's a lot of housing on that. Presumably that, you know, that's for council homes and so on. There's a lot, but the Forestry Commission, two million acres. National Trust, 600,000 acres. You know, RSPB, nearly 330,000. And so there are, the good news, I guess, is what I'm trying to crowbar in here, is that there are some actors who do have a broader remit beyond pure financial interest and gain that could do something really positive with this land. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I think maybe starting there could be a really exciting, uh, ex exciting point. Well, and I think what I really like to sort of dig into today is, is what are the frameworks that we have? So what does our policy and regulation sort of say around or, you know, control around how that land could be used and how it could be used for public good? Yeah, so I think Scotland's a really exciting place for some landmark cases where communities have got together, brought the funding together to buy out land from, from a handful of landowners. And the really big, one of the most recent examples would be the Langham Initiative of the Duke of Buccleuch uh, last October from raising a sum of about £3.8 million for just over 5,000 acres of land, six properties. The incredible thing was, I think two things. First is just how supportive uh, Scottish law was for this, but also the funding. Scottish government put up about a million pounds from the land fund there. But the other thing was just how many other funders they had to pull together to get the other 2.8 million. By my reckoning, there's about 20 big funders and then a lot of uh, crowdsourcing. So this is what can be done. Really exciting stuff. Yeah. In Scotland, it's important to note the, the distinction with Scotland and England. Scotland is, is seen to be quite progressive. Land reform is always very topical in Scottish politics and the Scottish Parliament. And we have strong sort of, or air quotes, strong community empowerment uh, legislation. We're now looking at even more progressive uh, land reform and supporting communities to do stuff like that. But in the last, in the last 10 years, the target under the Scottish government by this time was to have 1 million acres of land in community ownership. And they've fallen short of that by 400,000 acres. So even in Scotland, where there's there's government support for this, where there's there's a, a dedicated finance and legislation designed to, to make this more accessible and easier, there's still a long, long way to go. This sounds really cool to look at this kind of increasing democratisation of land in Scotland. Okay, it's not without its problems, but do we need that to reach net zero? So is it the issues of democratization that's so important if we're talking about net zero. So are we saying that by changing who owns the land will change what happens on the land and we'll see progress towards net zero? Or like, do we just need stronger, you know, frameworks and po policy frameworks provided by the state? So what is it about the democratization of land that is such an important aspect? Okay. So I think this is, there's a simple answer to that is that people will start doing different things with the land. So if it isn't purely generating maximum economic return on that land within the current context of what 
constitutes something which is financially beneficial, then you start doing other things which can generate environmental and social benefit. And so if you take the ex example of Langham, what they wanted to do with that land is develop a nature reserve in part, and that will focus on a whole wide range of other benefits, biodiversity, carbon sequestration, tourism, local jobs uh, for managing that land. If you put it in the community's hands, you can do something other than uh, pure economic uh, gain, but also you put the power back into the community's hands and you help them decide what they do with the land. So what we're saying then is that when it's owned by the few, it tends to be used mainly to deliver maximum economic returns and these other outcomes that are so critical, particularly for local communities, might get neglected. It services the needs of that individual landlord. It doesn't service the needs of the entire community. I think this is an interesting question, especially in the, not just in the Scottish context, but everywhere, mm -hmm. um, in relation to offsetting as well. When we talk about carbon offsetting, a lot of the land, it's not necessarily that, that landowners are reluctant to do green things with their land, but a lot of the land has been sold for offset, which is can be questionable in a lot of ways, accusations of greenwashing, etc. But again, it's who gets to benefit from the transition. So there's a justice element here. And it's one of the, the big questions, just one of the big questions that I'm really looking forward to, to chatting with our guests about today. Well, I guess we better bring them on then, hadn't we? Hi, I am Kate Swade. I am one of the co-executive directors of Shared Assets, a social enterprise think and do tank that works to reimagine what we can do with lands together. My name is Malcolm Coombe and I'm a senior lecturer in Scottish private law at the University of Strathclyde and I've been writing about Scottish land law and land reform for far too long. Kate, Malcolm, welcome to Local Zero. It's absolutely fabulous to get you on. We've been very excited about this episode for some time. I think the context we were setting before is that land ownership seems to be at the root of many of the issues relating to net zero and a just transition. So to fundamentally rewire our energy system means rewiring our economy, which requires rewiring the ownership of land and assets. So the first question to you both is how democratic is land ownership in the UK today? I think I kind of know the answer. <laughs> Is it a trick question? <laughs> I'll let you handle that whole potato first case. <laughs> I mean, I would say that even the statistics say it's not at all democratic. 5% of the land in England is householders. Um, and I think there's more land is used for golf courses than for houses, and certainly in an English context. The vast majority of land, so over 70% of land is less owned by, like we reckon, less than 1% of the population. But it's very, very hard to know because even information on land ownership isn't democratically available. So yeah, my, my answer would be it's, it's not at all a democratically accountable system, let, let alone a democratically controlled one. I suppose I'll, I'll respond with a riposte and say, who said it was going to be democratic? Who promised it was going to be democratic? Uh, but from a Scottish context, I think it's fair to say that it's generally accepted that Scotland has one of the most concentrated patterns of private land ownership in the developed world. The most modern commentary in that probably comes from Andy Whiteman, the Scottish land reform campaigner and uh, recent MSP, actually. He noted that less than 500 entities, individual uh, individuals or individual corporate entities, owned something like 50% of the privately owned rural land in Scotland. You've got about 87 
estates of more than 10,000 hectares. That's hectares, not acres, in Scotland, and 67 of those are in the Highlands. So is it, is it fair to say, to, to summarise it, as it's not very democratic in England and it's even worse in Scotland? I, I wouldn't want to take issue with what you've said there, Matt. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and just to clarify, when we talk about land, we are talking about, you know, if you look at a Google Maps or something, you're looking at the green bits. We're not talking about the sea. We're only talking about like the actual, uh, you know, the land that we would traditionally conceptualize. And the reason that I ask this is because, you know, this is a podcast we're focusing on net zero. And a big part of that is around how we generate and use energy, of course. I mean, there are lots of other factors as well. And increasingly, we're talking about onshore and offshore generation. So I guess in my mind, I'm just trying to, you know, make some of the connections between the sort of land we're talking about and the sorts of ways in which it can or can't be used to help drive net zero? I was thinking about, yeah, terra firma, the stuff that we we stand on. But there are obviously inland waters that the ownership of those or the rights to use those tend to be very much bound up with who owns the land around those features. So the people who are but a river, uh, for example. And there, there are also the extent of the Scottish sort of maritime zone within the 12 kilometres of the coast and what have you. But I'm I'm not really focusing on that. I'm more talking about the things that people will be able to trade and get registered on the Scottish Land Register to show us owner of that. And in terms of the boundaries to a community scheme, there's no denying that ownership of land is a huge agenda-setting tool. You know, if you are the owner of land, then you get quite a lot of say. When it comes to crucial decisions about building a local bit of energy apparatus, yet the actual proactive decision to do something is often the the landowners. There might be public involvement in terms of the planning process thereafter once they've made a decision, because in the UK, essentially, since the 40s, we've nationalised the right to develop. So because of the planning system, town country planning can step in at that stage. But that's reactive. So so it's a hugely important sort of, it gives you the whip hand to, to act in a certain way and to decide who you're going to give use rights to, whether it's a lease or whatever. There's something really interesting about rivers and coastal areas as being those, yeah, those bits that are... At shared assets, we think of them as common goods, like we think of land as a common good. But that, as as Malcolm said at the very beginning, isn't an assumption that everybody shares, right? And you can have an entire conversation about land and then suddenly realise you're talking at completely cross-purposes because one of you thinks that land is a simple input into the economy that the owner should be able to do whatever they like with. And one of you thinks that it's a common good that actually has impacts on the community surrounding it, which may be a bit of an exaggeration, but often you can find these two things. Uh, so I think one of the big boundaries for thinking more expansively about this stuff actually is around language and the way that we talk about land as, a, as an asset or as a resource. But thinking about rivers... In England, 90% of the land is not open access. It's not, you can't, you don't have the right to roam over it. And I think 99% of rivers people do not have rights over. So even for kayaking or swimming or fishing. So let alone a community trying to go, oh, actually, we'd really like to put a hydro scheme in there. Unless you have the luck of the riparian landowners being sympathetic or you happening to be the riparian landowner, you've got a really 
really big hill to climb potentially. Kate, you've mentioned asset, you know, wh- whether we should frame that. Also, Malcolm, you mentioned what is democratic. So there's two, there's two parts to this discussion that we're having, which probably need a bit of framing. And we've talked a bit about what kind of land we're referring to. What does democratic ownership and management of that land look like? We're interested in models of land use that enhance and support the common good. And we obviously have in the government as a landowner and in local authorities in particular, democratically accountable bodies that own land. I mean, there are lots of interesting models where you could have yet community land trusts, um, other types of less formal governance models where people yet are invited to have a say about what land should be how land should be used. And I would love to see a world where private landowners are in more open conversation with their local communities around what should be done to a piece of land and particularly thinking about large scale landowners rather than individuals with their own private gardens. But yeah, I think democracy, thinking one member, one vote, every vote counts. We do have a model of democratic land ownership. That's local authorities. They've been systematic, certainly in England, austeritified into passing on slash selling a whole amount of their assets. So we're seeing even that part of the the democratic bit of land ownership being shrunk. Absolutely. And Malcolm? Yeah, lots of interesting stuff there. And I was almost cursing you there, Matt, as you asked your question, because you were about to I was gonna I was gonna say something intelligent, but you framed the <laughs> you, you framed the question in the way that I was about to run in and say, because yes, there is a few ways you can consider how to democratize land ownership. It could be about the right of ownership itself and making more people owners, or it could be about the entitlements that are attached to land that are short of ownership. And it's a bit like land reform being something that you can pursue as a means to an end, or it can be an end in itself. Democratizing land ownership, I mean, if you were to give me three acres of land to farm, I probably wouldn't know where to start at the moment. Uh, I'd need to think quite hard about it. But if it was to get to the right people, whether it's the right itself, or if people were able to input to a process, the right to roam was mentioned earlier as something that we generally enjoy up in Scotland. Yeah, for some people, the ability to go for a hill walk, for a kayak, that that will be all they'll want to do with that particular asset, and that will be fine for them. But then also you've got to think about how to control that, and there's been problems of late in particular beauty spots of Scotland where people have been going to areas and setting up camp, whether that should be allowed, that sort of thing. And that's a good point to interrupt the chat and bring in a conversation that I had with Magnus Davidson from the Environmental Research Institute at the University of the Highlands and Islands. He's been telling me why land ownership is central to a just net zero transition. My research looks at the interactions between the environment, the economy and society. So obviously really concentrated land ownership in Scotland here. We know that um, something like less than 500 people own half of our private land. When you take into account the government and publicly owned land as well, they own a huge amount of land. And again, that's still um, under the control or ownership of the the government, one one organisation effectively. Um, So we have the, the a huge resource, which is incredibly valuable in the fight for net zero, controlled by a very small number of people. 
private as well. So very often um, they've they've got their own interests, and quite often as well, these these land holdings are um, not held for the reason of trying to fight towards net zero. Although increasingly they are, we'll maybe get onto that in a bit. Um, but they're often held as trophy pieces of land. So for example, hunting estates deer, grouse, whatnot, quite often not conducive to net zero as well because of the practice that go on there in terms of overgrazing, browsing, um, overgrazing, burning and such like. Um, so as we have to try and take this resource that we've got, and as a country, um, we generally have the resource in terms of our, our, our boundary, um, we have this resource and the the what we want to do with it is limited by those small number of people. So it creates this huge barrier in terms of um, what we want to do for net zero. So let's take a practical example. We want to plant a whole bunch of trees to, to sequester carbon. Say we've got a big estate where we can plant trees. The guy that owns that estate, it's usually quite often a guy, <laughs> they, they don't want to plant trees because they prefer to shoot grouse and shoot deer on it because um, they fly in from abroad for their summer holidays and take all their pals and go shooting. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we've just straight away removed a big area of land which could be used for us to meet net zero. Um, so yeah, typical, absolutely typical. Um, you want to be able to do something with it and somebody says no because they want to do something else with it. The way that the land market is right now, it's really exclusive. You and I can't go out and buy a couple of acres or a couple of hectares. The land market's incredibly inflated. It's only going to get worse as the net zero comes in. We've been using this terminology around net zero land rush, net zero land grab, where Scotland is really well suited as an investor if you want to come in and buy what are called green assets, effectively the land which you can then exploit for carbon credits, for example. Um, and Scotland's, um, we're told by the likes of, say, Savills, is one of the last places um, in the world which is um, you can come in and get this land relatively cheaply, totally out with um, my price range, totally out with most people's price range. Um, so that's going to just keep driving up, driving up, driving up the price and take it even further away from individuals or communities as well. As I'm standing here talking to you, if I look over my laptop out my window, there's a bit of land in the middle of Glasgow and just over the wall from my back garden where the community have been trying to do as little as like set up a wee community garden. They've done it twice. Twice the developers come in the last eight years and bulldoze it, even though they can't get the, the building permissions that they need because there are issues with the width of the road that comes into the, the little the little space. So a lot of it is that kind of, there's, there's things that could be done, but definitely so much experience, whether that's in the middle of Glasgow or particularly across the Highlands, of it just not happening. On the other side of it, and I don't I, I don't want to devil's advocate too much, but my, my partner's a, she's a solicitor. She works in this space. Um, she works around land and she's always saying, appreciates the, the inequality of it but there are examples of landowners who do want to try and do some good is there is there a way other than redistribution of land you think that can that can stimulate that fight towards net zero absolutely it's a really interesting question and let's not pretend that there aren't really big landowners out there moving in the complete right direction towards net zero let's take scotland's biggest um largest landowner for example um, quite often quite highly critical of um, their approach to land management. But in terms of environmental considerations, they're 
um, while Land Limited owned by Anders Poulsen, who um, majority or, um, or major stakeholder in ASOS, the, the clothing brand. Um, he's from Denmark. He's Scotland's biggest um, landowner. Came across when he was a kid and just fell in love with the country and has ended up buying over, what, 220 more now, um, 100,000 hectares. So what they did in Glenfeshie was they drastically cut the deer numbers and um, their factor there thomas mcdonald was the guy behind this just cut deer numbers cut deer numbers cut deer numbers and what's happened in that glen is just utterly amazing from an ecological point of view natural regeneration of um, native pine just really really cool um they're in the process of reducing deer numbers in um, their northern highland estates as well um so really interesting from an environmental perspective however if we want to judge that from a just transition point of view for example um one of the just transition principles is around redistribution of wealth they've been concentrating land even more and even more so let's take the north sutherland example they've been buying all the neighboring estates and concentrating huge area which used to be owned by a quite a number of different fairly benevolent landowners under this one guy who now owns massive area land and is coming in with quite drastic new management practices, quite often not well received by people that actually live there. It's costing a lot of money. Where does that money come from, for example? Um, and it's um, still presiding over an area with serious depopulation and demographic issues. So if we kind of um, look at that from the three pillars of sustainability what's happening environmentally might be really nice but on the social and economic perspectives does it hold true to sustainability there um, if we take other examples um one of the, the new ones is um jeremy leggett um the the solar innovator he's recently bought an estate just near loch ness bunloyd estate and he's going to be rewilding that as well but from uh um and again this is um from from a private perspective what he wants to do is uh, have a self-imposed tax of 10% of his profits going to the local community. He wants to put people back on the land, create new homes. So it's not to say that private um, landlords um, aren't doing good. Um, there, there, there's guys out there, and again, it is guys again in this case, um, out there doing some pretty interesting things. But they are still kind of exploiting an unregulated and an unjust land market. Could I go elsewhere in the world and say, right, I made a couple of million quid off my business. Can I just go buy a big estate and do what I want with that estate, even if it's altruistic? From your perspective then, in terms of accepting that some landlords can do really, really great work and do have the, the best intentions at heart, accepting also that there's some amazing community stuff going on and that there is a need for some redistribution what do you think the next steps are, the, the, the pressing things that we have to address to make land and land ownership work for a just transition going forward? For me, it's always reducing the concentration of ownership, um, maybe even putting maximum caps on how much land can be owned. Maybe even just to take a step backwards as well, to go back to the last question, because there's a point there that I think is useful to address. Most people perceive that the, the large-scale um, and concentrated land ownership makes land scale restoration easier, more possible. Um, and it kind of makes sense when you think about it, that as one landowner, if I want to restore a landscape, it's easier for me to do it than, say, four or five different landowners. Practically, it's not actually quite true. Scottish Land Commission um, 
did a, a report on this and found that the, the conclusion there is weak, though some efficiencies in terms of administration might actually be there. It's less true than you might think. If you look at things like Cairngorms Connect and the Cairngorms National Park, again, another fantastic example of multitude of landowners, private, public, um, ENGOs working together for landscape scale in a truly great landscape uh, scape, um, in terms of restoration. So it was just to address that point that um, you don't need to have one landowner owning the whole landscape to make it easier to restore. Yeah, yeah. In terms of what needs to happen, um, we need to first make more people um, own more land. That's really funny, actually. Um, friends with Rob Gibson, the, the, the old SMP, MSP for Caithness, Sutherland and Ross, and he tells me a story where he was speaking with Scottish Land and Estates. Scottish Land and Estates is effectively the membership organisation that looks after the the, the big landed estates um, and he effectively turned around and said look I don't want to get rid of you as an organization I just want to increase your membership numbers drastically and I thought that <laughs> summed up brilliantly um, so yeah getting more people owning land getting some of the bigger ones who own a huge amount of land to diversify own less land maybe put a cap on the maximum amount of land that's owned regulate the land system that's it we've got an unregulated land system so for example what do i mean by that i mean if you um or go to buy a piece of land for example it should automatically trigger what's called a public interest test where you are judged on your plans for that piece of land to make sure it's in the public interest. From an environmental perspective, a lot of environmentalists are putting faith in this. I should say that it made it through the SMP and the Greens manifestos, yeah, yeah. so will likely become through a new land reform bill in the next parliamentary term. Um, but a lot of environmentalists have put in faith in this. So, for example, um, and it's not just the sale or acquisition of a, an estate that could trigger this, it's, say, a change to planning on the estate. So if I wanted to build a, a new farm building on the estate, it might trigger um, a public interest test for the whole estate. Um, and it would turn around and um, they would go, what are you doing on that estate? That And does it work in the public's interest? So if I go, well, I'm going to plough all the peatlands up and cut down all the trees, <laughs> it's not in the public's interest because that's going to increase greenhouse gas emissions um, but from what I'm putting a lot of faith in that it's going to cover social and economic considerations as well that it needs to be done in the favour of communities say you're suffering from significant um, depopulation issues as we do in a lot of the areas of the Northern Highlands a public interest test for example could say right if you want to do that you need to make land cheaply available or um, for the community to build community housing but yeah we need to to regulate the land market that bit better as well to regulate for net zero we need to also support landowners and this is where it kind of gets a bit difficult. We need to support landowners in the transition to managing the land better. So things like payments for ecosystem services. We're seeing it with likes of Woodland Code and the Peatland Code, where you're getting paid to manage that land in terms of the wood and the peat um, for the sequestration of carbon. The challenge here is because so few people own so much land, we're at risk of funneling a lot of public funding into the pockets of a very small number of people. So there's a tightrope here. So in, in your experience and from the, the work that you've done around Community Land Scotland, 
Do you find that communities manage land differently? Excellent question. So um, just as an aside, I'm a director of Community Land Scotland as well. And we as CLS commissioned um, a piece of work looking at community landowners' role in the fight against climate change. And um, inherit, um, they did an absolutely brilliant piece of work that's culminated in a report, a film, some case studies um, that can be found on, on, on the website. Um, and they effectively found that community landowners in the fight against climate change go well beyond what any other landowners do in terms of measures and, and in terms of doing good effectively. So for example, uh, whether it's community energy, planting woodland, peatland restoration, most importantly, it's, it's how it's done. So it's done in a holistic manner that delivers on a multitude of benefits, a multitude of aims. Um, so it's, for example, delivering environmental and climate benefits, as well as the social and economic considerations alongside. Um, it also builds capacity within the community that can then be used to deliver on other aims, not just climate change. But it's really this um, fight against climate change is inherent in the work that's already done. It's not deemed as being special. So an example, would be say community energy obviously fantastic in terms of renewable energy in terms of reducing emissions but may actually just be done as a source of income for the community so achieving these environmental aims without really thinking about it and um, so yeah it's an amazing piece of work and um, i would recommend people go and have a look at it and it's the perfect showcase for me as an environmentalist and as a proponent of community land to turn around and say look I'm saying that it can be done better, and this proves it can be done better. So for me, put land in the community's hands and they will achieve the environmental goals better than the likes of, say, the ENGOs or the rewilding billionaire landowners. Massive, massive thanks to Magnus Davidson there. Properly fascinating stuff. Back now to the chat that the rest of the team are having, and here is Becky to pick up. Can we achieve a just transition to net zero without democratisation? Let's put it as simply as that. Could we do that? Or is that off the cards completely? I suppose I'm, I would ask back to you, what do you mean by democratisation in that, in that, in the context of that question? I'd be quite interested in, you know, you presented us with a few different ways in which that could look, right? So take your choice. <laughs> I would say I don't think we can achieve the transition that we need to achieve without really seriously looking at the both the pattern of private land ownership. So not in any sense going and taking away the gardens of the 5% of the land that is taken up by private housing, but looking at the the massive inequalities and central sort of concentration of land ownership there's people doing lots of interesting thinking around say what would a what would reparations look like so from a recognizing that uh communities of color and black people tend to hold far fewer assets have far less access to land in this country how do we actually look at land through a sort of reparative lens to start to think about building a more just future for everybody um so i think there's one thing of yeah looking at the, the sticky thing of are certain people going to have to give up some stuff in order for everybody in a more democratic way to have a bit more each? And then there's the stuff around, yeah, the, the potential role of the public, both the public sector and the, the broad commons kind of sector, the kind of the community ownership, charitable ownership, all of the stuff that sits outside the sort of purely private profit-making sector and outside of the state. And increasing, yet yeah, local authorities and the state being a more visionary, more forward-thinking landowners. 
including things like the Crown Estate and the Ministry of Defence and the Duchies of Cornwall and the Duchies of Lancaster and all these people who have actually huge power to really make a difference in terms of carbon emissions and in terms of energy transition because they own all of that land. But also in terms of yeah, financing and funding local authorities properly, we've been doing a lot of work recently around publicly owned farmland, so council-owned council owned farms, which have halved in the last 40 years. And they were often one of the only ways for people to get on the kind of farming ladder if they don't have family farming backgrounds and could be a huge part of this transition in terms of moving to much less carbon intensive, much more agroecological farming methodologies. And you have all these councils who are both declaring climate emergencies and selling off their council farm estates at the same time. And I don't blame them for that in a way because they've been put into a really impossible position. But yeah, sort of having a a proper look at the way the public finances work and recognising that the state holding and stewarding land in trust for the future could be one of the key mechanisms for making sure that we do achieve that transition. Is that what we're seeing at the moment? So land that is generally owned by either these cooperatives, charities or local authorities tends to be used in more, um, I guess, climate friendly ways than land that is owned by individual trusts you know do we see a difference there in kind of the implications of how that land is used and what it is trying to achieve I don't have like the stats to back up like I don't have firm evidence to back this up and I know there are a lot of private landowners and you look at places like the NEP estate who are rewilding and who are going the extra mile in terms of stewarding their land but say one example in England is the ecological lands cooperative who buy agricultural land and get planning permission to convert it into small holdings and on each of their sites they've now got I think five different sites across England all of the people who are going to be farming that land voluntarily sign up to binding agreements around ecological management of the sites and almost all of the land that they're taking on is degraded monocrop agricultural land and so I think you could certainly say that the default position for the broad social sector would be to people are interested in land because they're interested in, in the environment. Whereas I think there's a lot of the private sector that maybe isn't, but then the private sector is huge, right? You can't generalize overly about it. But that's really interesting because what you also introduced there was this concept of like the governance and accountability of the land that is sold and like adding in additional uh, an additional governance structure that means that that land has to be used in, in certain ways. And I know, Malcolm, like you are very focused on the kind of the broader legal aspects around land. Like, is this something that you could see happening outside of these kind of individual um, negotiations? Is this kind of a, a consideration of something that could help deliver net zero the role that land use could play in that? It's a good question. Context is everything, he said, to try and hide a multitude of sins there. But I can think of a few private initiatives for renewable schemes in Scotland. I can think of some more community-oriented schemes. I was involved in one in my time when I was up living in Aberdeen. There was a micro hydro project in the River Don, but then there's also micro hydro projects in bigger states like Artornish over in the West Coast. Uh, and these are all making a difference in that way. But also it can be the, the, the way the community is involved can really determine whether these schemes are viable and have the support of the people who live near them. So the people who live in the island of Gia are much more in favour of their wind turbines when it's the community's trust that it's built on and they know that the money is staying in the island, 
when you compare that to maybe some of the reaction, and it's not a universal reaction, I've written about this a little bit, but up in somewhere like the Isle of Lewis where there's various plans for wind turbines and depending on how the community is involved, whether it's, and there's a, there's a nice legal point about the crofters possibly having rights in the common grazings versus what the landowner, the ultimate landowner wants to happen in the land and goodness, you know, that, that, that there's a whole lot you could you could look at. I will come back to uh, a discussion point from earlier in terms of democratisation. And I remember a few years ago, I was part of a team that was looking at interventions in land markets across different nations for, for policy reasons, essentially, that uh, people might have said, or nation states might have tried to control who could get a hold of land. Uh, and I was discussing this proposal with one of my then colleagues who was um, an economist up at the University of Aberdeen and talking about concentration of land ownership. And his question was, well, where's the market failure? Where's the market failure? And that's a sort of hard-nosed analysis of it. But it's, a, it's, it's something that you do need to think about before you go away and tinker with um, settled property rights. Because having settled property rights to, to sound like a, a boring law and economics person for a moment, you know, that you, you, if you, you wouldn't sort of invest in a market if it's a fickle situation and, you're, and things are going to get sort of reformed away from you. So, so, so you, there is, you need to be careful uh, in that regard. And also, again, to a Scottish context, you've got um, a lot of la so complete sweeping statements coming up. Uh, you've got some land in Scotland, not much of it is arable, and you're probably just going to be farming that to its fullest extent, irrespective of who owns it. That's going to be in the public interest. Then you've got a lot of land which actually who owns it isn't going to make that much difference. Like I'm thinking of the Cairngorm Plateau or something, or the Southern Uplands. You know, not Sure, there might be some decisions that can be made, uh, but the person who actually owns it won't necessarily make a huge difference. But then you've got land that is maybe strategic, land where the decisions that an owner can make can have a huge impact on the local community. So so in, in that sense, not all land is equal. Correct. <laughs> and it can have a different role to play. So I just wanted to take you back and maybe humour the economist for a moment around market failures. And of course, you know, I think many could argue that with the house prices and the affordability, uh, as just one example, we clearly do have a market failure playing out in terms of land in the UK. In that context, and in the context that you laid out before, that Scotland possibly has some of the least fair distribution of land in the UK, Scotland has taken steps forward to address this in ways that maybe England and uh, Westminster hasn't. So what steps have Scottish government taken to try and improve the democratisation or distribution of land? Um, I'm speaking of various community rights to buy, Scottish Land Fund. Uh, Malcolm, I know you're close to this. So I wonder whether you could just briefly highlight what's out there and, and how successful it's been. Sure. So you've got, since devolution, since the Scottish Parliament uh, was established by the Scotland Act 1998, there's been a few waves of land reform, essentially. The first wave followed on from the land reform policy group that was set up by the then Labour government, chaired by Lord Sewell. And their work led to the first Scottish Land Reform Act, the, the Land Reform Scotland Act 2003, which brought in the right to roam that we mentioned earlier, incidentally, which gave you the right of responsible access to a lot of Scotland. And also, in part two of that legislation, a, a community right to buy, a right of first refusal, a preemptive right to buy, 
that essentially allows a community that is locally accountable, has got a legal form, it allows that community to target land that is local to them, uh, register an interest in a public register maintained by Registers of Scotland that you can check online for free. And when you have this registered interest, it means that should the landowner decide to put the land on the market, then the community is for a, a set time period, they're the only show in town. So they, they must sell to the community if the community is ready and willing to buy. You've got about eight months to mobilise, to find the funds. But the community can also force the hand, can they not, more recently? So this is more recently, yeah, but the yeah. I'll, I'll get to that if I may, because they also, in the 2003 Act, some communities in the Highlands and Islands of Scotland, where there was crofting, tenure, you know, crofting, I could talk about that for absolutely ages, but essentially that was a 19th century reform Irish and Highland land politics dictated that the UK state, which at that point included Ireland, had to make a reform which essentially guaranteed these, I'll use the word advisedly, some people might mind, like peasant farmers were able to have security of tenure, so a right to stay in this land even though they didn't own it, and right for compensation for improvements and fair rents. And this was really sticky. It sort of, it went, it was passed down through generations and it doesn't apply to the whole of Scotland by any manner or means, it's only the traditional crofting counties. And in those areas, uh, land that is a small croft holding and the common grazings that a, a crofting township would have shared use rights in can be bought by the local community on a forced basis, on an absolute basis. They've still got the still various tests and both those rights to buy have mentioned it's got it's got to be in the public interest and it's got to be compatible with sustainable development. Malcolm Weldon for for potted history of <laughs> Scottish land reform. That was no small feat. Uh, Kate, is there any? Can England, Wales, Northern Ireland, can they crib any of the homework from from Scotland? Do you see any big gaping holes in in, in obvious land reform? So in England. We have a thing called the Localism Act, which came in in 2011, which was very much in the era of big society and or maybe the community can step up and do things themselves and take things on board. The Localism Act does not give communities a right to buy, but it does give people a right to bid. And so community, community organisations constituted in a similar way to how Malcolm was mentioning can attempt to register an interest in what is called assets of community value. So if there is something in your community whose current or recent past use makes it an asset of community value, so that's great if it's, say, the last pub in the village or uh, the last garage or shop in the village or a community centre or a community garden, potentially, or um, there's been lots of cases in London, say, of people uh, registering really historic gay bars and stuff, like so things that are of particular importance to a particular community. You can attempt to register that as an asset of community value. The council can, regardless of who owns it, the local council get to say whether it is an asset of community value or not. And then the things that are are held on an asset register. And in a similar way to in Scotland, then if the owner decides they want to sell, the community has a six-month moratorium to try and get the money together to buy. It doesn't give you any discount on the price, and the owner is not compelled to sell to you. So you could go through all of that work, and actually they could just say no and put it on the open market. So it's not as strong as in Scotland. It doesn't apply in Wales, and it doesn't apply in Northern Ireland. 
We also in the UK have asset transfer legislation, which, sorry, in England, I'm assuming that applies in Scotland as well, where um, local authorities can transfer assets to community organisations at up to £2 million, less than best consideration, so less than less than the price that they might have otherwise obtained on the open market. But what that does, some people would argue, is de-democratise land ownership because you're taking it out of the public sector and putting it into the community sector. Although there are some great examples of people who've taken on assets that would have otherwise been sold off into the private sector and making them into real community hubs. We have often wondered whether we need a right to manage and so actually not trying to take ownership away but recognising where there is land that is underused or you know we have a big problem with really undermanaged woodlands in England and actually whether communities should be able to try and step in and take on the management of things themselves. There's also a suite of rights around contesting the way councils have procured certain things but they don't actually give you much power other than to put something back onto the open market so make something be retendered. Uh, so yeah we're a long way behind Scotland both in terms of the the way the kind of the way land is talked about politically and the way it is seen uh, in terms of the funding and support that's available to community organisations who want to buy or acquire land and yeah in terms of anything even halfway smelling of land reform getting into Westminster. And Kate shared assets works closely with communities. So do you have any success stories you can share with us around where, you know, communities have taken ownership and have been able to transform the way that that land is used and help start to deliver some of these really important kind of environmental and social outcomes um, that are so important as we transition towards net zero? Yeah, I mean, there's some really wonderful examples out there um, and we can't take credit for any of them. It's not our work. It's uh, we, we work alongside some of these people. I mentioned the Ecological Land Co-op earlier. They're doing really amazing work in terms of bringing smallholder farmers, get like roots into farming for people without family backgrounds, reinventing the kind of small farm and re- remediating lands. There's um, one of the classic asset transfer examples is uh, the folks who took over Hebden Bridge Town Hall, which was an old council town hall, and they have really revived that as a, at the absolute heart of the community. You've got places like Hill Holt Woods in Lincolnshire, which are re- completely um, a sort of million pound turnover social enterprise, doing lots of work with young people around forestry, building new houses, all sorts of things. Um Ford Hall Farm, which was a standard tenanted organic farm that was in in real trouble and went out to its community and was the first community owned farm then in England. What's the secret sauce in all of this, right? So is it that there were really engaged people in the communities that drove that forward? Or was there something else that, that happened that could help that that help that materialise? What I was going to say is all of those are really different examples. But what I think they all have in common is a huge amount of determination from often quite a small number of people who were able to galvanize a large amount of community support. Sometimes, like one of the other examples I was going to mention was Coin Street Community Builders in London, where that was the the 13 acres of land on the South Bank in London, including the Oxo Tower, is now owned by a not-for-profit community-controlled company it took a seven-year campaign to make that happen. Um, that almost all of these things, yeah, huge determination, huge passion. I just heard about um, a community centre 
project that I worked on about 10 years ago in Bungie in Suffolk, which has finally just been built. And it's often, yeah, that that cheesy old quote about a, a, a small group of people who can change the a, a committed group of people can change the world might not be true about changing the world, but it's certainly necessary for community land projects. And I think that's one of the really big problems that we have systemically is we have these good examples that you can wave them like little flags, but they're not replicable because you can't replicate that passion and that determination and that sheer pig headedness sometimes of just not taking no for an answer. And that's why we do need systemic change and we need to create a, a land system that is much more focused on the common good all round so that you don't have just have to have certain people putting their entire lives into trying to get bits of land or certain buildings into more productive and generative use. And Malcolm, do you have from the from the research that you've been doing, have you seen any particular key ingredients where this is um, this democratisation is opening up? Is it, you know, it is obviously those people in the community that are actually driving this forward. Is there other are there other elements that you've seen at play here as well? Yeah, you do need uh, a healthy resident community that's that's willing to sort of roll up their sleeves and also have the wherewithal uh, to to do that. But also, the, I suppose the difference north of the border, and this is where I sort of shoehorn rapidly back to what I was talking about before, is there are legislative tools that can make a big difference. So the example that I've written about a little bit is the Belfield Church by out in Portobello, in the outskirts of Edinburgh. That was an old church that was going to be sold to a private developer. The community had already lost one old church to a private development. They wanted to keep this. And it was just at the time when uh, it was a bit of legislation called the Community Empowerment Scotland Act 2015, expanded the right of first refusal across the whole of Scotland. That right used to just be in rural Scotland, and it was just at the sweet spot of this This right was coming on stream. And they had some very... And Portobello, without wanting to sound sort of flippant or anything, there were some smart, well-to-do people there who uh, were architects, lawyers. There was actually someone who was involved in uh, the Development Trust Association Scotland who were, who were able to get involved and drive that forward. So luck, <laughs> timing, the right people, all of these things can be crucial. So I think just to wrap up, what, what should we be asking our listeners to consider uh, in terms of supporting shared use, democratisation of, of land um, in a bid to tackle net zero? What, what could they be doing beyond maybe managing their gardens in a different way, um, thinking of this in commons land, shared land, shared assets, what would you be recommending they do next? In terms of the Scottish context, schemes always get looked on more favourably in the event of a challenge somewhere down the track or funding or whatever, when people have been more proactive rather than reactive. If you are reacting to what's perceived as nimbyism or something like that, then whether it's the local press, whether it's potential funders, whether it's a legislative scheme, that'll end up rubbing against what you're trying to do. So if you've if you've got something uh, that uh, is is a thorn in the side of your local community, it's it's better to to do something sooner rather than later. Uh, and I think that would be my my key point. Now, now there will be 
times when you can't but react. And I can think of some community schemes, including some community energy schemes that have reacted out of it and been formed out of adversity. But also, if you can get ahead of the game, uh, and, and, and admittedly that does, as I say, it does rely on people being switched on to this, listening to podcasts like this one, working out what, uh, what op- options are available to them. Fantastic. And Kate, you've got the final word. The final word would probably be one of the things that is probably one of my first words normally, which is it does all go back to land. And actually, if you have land, whether you're a church or a doctor's surgery or a hospital or a local authority or in a university, you do have the power to do stuff with that land that can have a huge impact. And if you don't have land, uh, like most of us don't have lands. Yet, as Malcolm says, being really aware of the land in your local area and thinking about what, how could that be used more productively, more generatively, better for the common good, and seeing if you can get together with some people to try and make that happen. It sometimes can be easier than you think. Sometimes you're pushing at an open door. And if the people with land and the people without land are both thinking about it, then you're much more likely to be able to meet in the middle. Fantastic, Kate. Malcolm, thank you very much indeed. It's been an absolute pleasure. Well, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's fun. I hope you might both be able to stick around for just a few more minutes to play our favourite game, which is Future or Fiction. Ooh. If, if you're willing, then I will hand over. I'm, I'm willing, but I've got absolutely no idea what I've agreed to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ready and willing. Okay, over to you, Fraser. Yes, yes, thanks very much, Matt. So, Future or Fiction, for our esteemed guests and for the uninitiated, is a game where I present the panel with a brand new technology of some sort, and you have to decide whether you think it's real, i.e. you think it's the future, or if you think it's fiction, i.e. I've just pulled it out of my backside. So, this technology, today's episode, is called Don't Be a Grass. Don't be a grass. Rule number one. So, lots of technologies mimicking or based on natural habitats have been designed in the effort to combat the climate emergency. But how about this? Scientists have designed an artificial lawn grass that, rather than typical plastic grass, is made up of a special absorbent material that can capture CO2 from the air more efficiently than regular grass or leaves. Do we think it's the future? Or do we think it's fiction? Who wants to open the baton? So I have a I have a clarifying question. I always have a clarifying question. You do, yeah. <laughs> and I never have a clarifying answer. So this is a synthetic material, you're saying? Or it's a natural material? Synthetic, yes. A synthetic material that basically does what a tree does, but it looks like grass and is more efficient. Yes. Okay. You get it, you get it. It's eco-friendly astroturf. Basically, yeah. <laughs> but more than eco-friendly. It's- no maintenance, you just you just put it down and it and it works. What do the guests think? What do the guests think? We need to hand over to the guests, yeah. They'll be far far more informed than we are. <laughs> yeah, we definitely do. <laughs> Have you had any any huge land buyouts to plant some some fake grass yet? Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> um I'm gonna go just to get the conversation rolling, I'm going to go with fiction. Uh, and also, I'm just I'm wondering in terms of the sunk cost in making this treatment. I don't know. So I'm going, to, I'm, going to go, I'm going to go fiction. Okay. Sharp to the point. Thank you. I was thinking maybe fact, just because it feels like one of those things that 
people love a technological solution to something that is actually relatively straightforward. And I can imagine people, I can imagine someone with a pitch deck making a case, but actually this is going to be really low maintenance. <laughs> I can too, actually. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, I've come up with this great thing. It's like much more efficient than grass. Yeah. You never have to mow it. Really low maintenance, no leaves to rake. <laughs> it's better than grass. Yeah. yeah. And that actually, it feels like one of those steps into this potential dystopian future of like being completely hermetically sealed off from the natural world. So I unfortunately think it's fact. Fair dues, fair dues. A little bit of a sort of Elon Musk, no need to build this, so we're going to build it. Yeah. Exactly. You can imagine the pitch now. Matt and Becky, where are we with this? <sighs> yeah, I'm split. I, I'm completely convinced by Kate's argument there, which uh, <laughs> this is the kind of thing that Silicon Valley would have gobbled up five, ten years ago, thrown tens of hundreds of millions of pounds into its development. but is it technically possible? I'm I'm going to go fiction. I'm going to sit in Malcolm's camp, even though I'm pretty sure Kate could be right. I'm also struggling this week because I, I think about our last episode where I was so convinced that it just wouldn't exist because of the practical limitations. And we realized very quickly that um, engineers don't always design stuff that will be useful in the real world, even though it works <laughs> in the lab. So part of me wants to think, you know, okay, I could buy into that. On the other hand, do I think that people who are creating synthetic replacement to grass care that much about carbon capture? No. As opposed to the other features? You know, so, oh, it's a hard one this week. What did you go for, Matt? Fiction. Yeah, I'll go future. <laughs> Split. Okay, so we've got two and two. We've got a gender divide on the panel today. Got a lot riding on this one now. Yeah. Okay, so we're, we're locking that in. That's Matt for fiction, am I right? Matt and Malcolm for fiction, Becky and Kate for future. The answer is... It's fiction. Yes. Yay. <laughs> Don't be a grass, it's fiction. Although scientists in the US did design fake plastic trees, hashtag Radiohead, a few years back, which never really took off. Fake long grass as a more environmentally friendly carbon capturing alternative hasn't caught on just yet. I think most people just plant grass. I mean, they could just make normal AstroTurf, but make it white to kind of reflect the heat. But anyway, it's fiction. I don't know why I'm critiquing it. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag albedo effect. Right, we got that one in. Good stuff. Thanks to Kate and Malcolm for another fascinating discussion. I hope you both enjoyed it. Yes, thank you very much for inviting me. Yeah, absolutely. Brilliant. Thanks so much. Just to remind you all, we're at a new Twitter handle. We're at LocalZeroPod. Um, and if you want to engage with the discussion from today or any other episodes, please do so by um, linking us in, and we'd be more than happy to connect with you. Until then, it's thank you for listening and goodbye. Bye. 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 Produced by Bespoken Media.